take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 20. Psalm 20. As you turn there, I have a bunch of announcements for you. And so, listen fast. First of all, today we kicked off our discovery class. This is a class for those who are new to Rocky Point to find out more about what we believe as a church and what membership looks like. And uh, if you missed today, don't worry. It's not too late to get in on uh, the class. You can join us next Sunday at 9 o'clock in our library. And uh, we're going to continue that class, and it'll go through uh, all of the Sundays of August. You are welcome to join us for the Discovery class next Sunday. Second, our Wednesday night activities are getting ready to resume August 24th. We will have our fellowship dinner at 5 o'clock in the gym. We'll have our cross trainers for kids who are uh, K through 6th grade. And um, that'll be at 6 o'clock. And then discipleship classes for youth and adults will be going on at 6.15. And so please be sure to join us on Wednesday nights as we uh, resume those August 24th. And uh, speaking of our adult discipleship classes, in just a few weeks, we're going to begin a new approach to our adult discipleship classes. So beginning uh, August 31st, we're going to have two different offerings of classes for adults. Both are going to be offered Wednesday nights at 6.15 and Sunday morning at 9. One of those offerings is going to be a men's and women's Bible study in 2 Samuel. And you can, again, you can attend either the men's or the women's Bible study in 2 Samuel Wednesday nights at 6.15, starting on August 31st. Or you can attend that same Bible study Sunday mornings at 9, starting September 4th. So each week, both of those time slots will have the same thing taught. So if you can't come to one, you can go to the other, and, uh, and you can choose when you want to attend that Bible study. The other offering that we're going to have will be a book study through a book called The Gospel at Work. It's all about how the gospel impacts the way we think about our jobs. And just like with 2 Samuel, this class will be available at two different times, Wednesday nights at 6.15, starting August 31st, or Sunday mornings at 9, starting September 4th. So one of the reasons why we're taking this approach uh, to adult classes is to help those who want to serve in various ministries. For example, if you want to serve in kids' ministry on Wednesday nights, but you also want to do the gospel at work study, you don't have to choose. You can serve on Wednesdays and then be a part of the gospel at work class on Sundays. So on that note, uh, members of Rocky Point, we are needing volunteers in several key areas. First, uh, we are needing teachers for our elementary-aged kids on Sunday morning at 9 Second, we, with Wednesday nights starting, we are also in need of teachers for our nursery-aged kids Wednesdays at 6. Uh, then, uh, again, with, with Wednesday nights, one of the things that we look forward to is being able to eat together. But if we're going to eat together, someone's got to prepare the food. And so if you would be able to uh, be a part of helping to cook uh, the Wednesday night meals, uh, even if, it, if it's just once a month, if you'd be able to be a part of that um, 
uh, we would love for you to. And so uh, if, if any of those areas, whether it's teaching elementary kids, teaching nursery kids, meal team, if you're able to serve in any of those areas, would you please take one of those serve cards that's in a seat back in front of you and fill that out and drop it off at the door when you leave? Uh, we would love to talk with you. And even if you still have some questions, if you're not ready to like sign on the dotted line, uh, if you still have some questions, go ahead and fill that out so we can start that conversation with you about serving in those areas. We'd love to, uh, to help you serve in that way. Okay, I have just one last announcement, but it's a big one. And that is this. Beginning Sunday, September 4th, gathered worship is going to begin at 10.30 instead of 10.15. Now, if you're here at 10.15... You know, today we didn't start at 10.15, but we meant to. Uh, so, uh, but beginning September 4th, we're going to start this service, Gathered Worship, at 10.30 instead of 10.15. So those Sunday classes that I was just talking about, um, all of our Sunday classes are going to be extended by 15 minutes, and so we're going to adjust uh, the start time of Gathered Worship as well to start at 10.30 to accommodate that change. So uh, starting September 4th, Please, by all means, still be here at 1015, but just know if we don't start the service till 1030, it's because we meant to. So uh, that's the last announcement, uh, but before we get into the sermon, we have um, a new memory verse that we're going to look at. As a church, we've been making the practice of memorizing one portion of scripture together each month, and this month, uh, it's first Sunday of the month, so we have a new verse, and we get to all read it together, Psalm 23:6. Let's read this together. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23, 6. With that, let's turn to Psalm 20. Psalm 20. As a church, we've been in a series walking through the Psalms, the songbook of the people of God. Many of the psalms, including the one we're going to look at today, were written by King David, arguably the greatest king of Israel in the Old Testament. Not only did King David write many of the psalms himself, but he also wrote many of the psalms about the king of God's people, the office that he occupied. In some ways, these psalms about the king applied to David himself, as the king of Israel, but as we'll see today, David not only wrote about himself or even the kings who would come after him immediately, he wrote with one future king in particular in mind. With that, let's read Psalm 20. Since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of the Lord Jesus himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? The Holy Spirit says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Salah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him 
from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, this week at Power Up Clubs, we, we told a bunch of Bible stories, but one of the Bible stories that we told was the story of David and Goliath. So there was two armies lined up for battle. On the one side, you had the people of Israel, God's chosen nation. On the other side, you had the army of the Philistines, the enemy of the people of God. And the Philistines send out onto the battlefield one man, their champion, Goliath, stands nine feet tall. He comes out with sword and spear and javelin that other men could hardly carry. And Goliath put out a challenge to the army of the Israelites. He said, send me one man. If he can defeat me, we will be your slaves. But if I can defeat him, you will be our slaves. Israel had a king named Saul. And he should have been the one to go out and represent Israel. But he was afraid. And so was every other soldier in his army. But when the king... And every member of the army was unwilling to go. There was one who was willing to represent God's people Israel. A young shepherd boy named David. He went out and faced Goliath as a representative of the army of Israel. One man representing his entire nation. So all of Israel's hope for success was found in that one representative David. And that day, God used David to defeat Goliath and save Israel from the hand of their enemies. And God anointed David as the next king of Israel. Now, not every battle Israel faced came down to a one-on-one, winner-take-all duel, but that story shows a principle That was at play every time Israel went out into battle. And that's this. The salvation of the whole nation was riding on the salvation of the king. The king of Israel was chosen by God to be their representative, their champion. And so the whole nation placed their hope for victory in one man, the king. His victory would mean their victory. His salvation would mean their salvation. And this is the idea that we see in Psalm 20. The people of God could sing this song or a song like it as they prepared to go out into battle. They would ask God to save the king because the salvation of the king was the salvation that they needed. 
And the message that I want us to hear from Psalm 20 today is that the salvation of the king is the salvation we need. Not the salvation of David or any other earthly king. The salvation we need is the salvation of King Jesus. Because he was saved, we can be saved. The salvation of the king is the salvation we need. We're going to see that message unfold throughout this psalm. In verses 1 through 5, we're going to look at the salvation of the king. And in verses 6 through 9, we'll see the salvation we need. First of all, in verses 1 through 5, the salvation of the king. The salvation of the king. Well, as you probably noticed when we read it, the psalm begins with seven prayers for salvation. With each of these prayers, the singers of this psalm are expressing what they want God to do. But you might have noticed they're making their prayers to God by addressing the king, God's anointed king. So they're singing to the king about the salvation they want God to give to him. So in the first part of verse 1, they pray for salvation from trouble. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. The day of trouble, from context, seems to refer to an upcoming battle. The enemy is mustering their troops, and the king is praying to God for salvation, for help and support against the enemies. And so the people of God pray that God would answer the king's prayers and give him the help that he is asking for, salvation from trouble. Then in the second part of verse 1, they pray for salvation in God's name. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. The name of God refers to his reputation. It's like we would talk about someone putting their name on their work, standing by it. God put his name on Israel. He put his name on uh, a man named Jacob, whose other name was Israel, and he was the man whom the nation of Israel came from, the God of Jacob. So God put his name on Israel. He committed to love this nation and preserve them as his people. And so this prayer in verse 1 is a prayer for God's salvation, and it's banking on the fact that God is going to uphold his reputation he is going to do what he said he would do for Israel, for his own namesake. He's going to keep his promises to his people. People are praying for salvation in God's name. Then in verse 2, they pray for salvation from heaven. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. So this prayer looks up to God's heavenly sanctuary where his throne is. And the singers ask God to send his anointed king help and support, salvation from heaven. Then in verse 3, they, they shift their focus from what they want God to do to what the king has been doing. And they pray for salvation through reverent sacrifice. Look at verse 3. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. So here we see the king has offered sacrifices to God. And it's important to understand that what we're seeing here is the king acting kind of like 
a priest. Remember that idea of a king priest? We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. This prayer of the people is a prayer for God to accept the king's burnt offering. So several times in the Bible, we see Israel offer a sacrifice to God as they prepare to go out into battle. This is an offering of worship that was meant to help the king and his people get their hearts right and devote themselves to God before the upcoming battle. Uh, They would offer this sacrifice, and along with their sacrifice, they would offer up prayers to God for favor on their efforts. And, And that's what's in view here when they pray that God would receive these sacrifices. So the king has offered his reverent worship to God, and the people want God to hear the king. So in a way, this is similar to verse 1. The people are praying that God would answer the king's requests that are being sent up to God along with his offering. They pray for salvation through reverent sacrifice. So this theme of praying for God to answer the king continues in verse 4 as they pray for salvation that grants desires. Verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire, and fulfill all your plans. So again, the singers are praying that God would give the king what he's praying for, give him what his heart desires. This verse assumes, though, that the king's heart wants what God's heart wants. The heart is really important when it comes to the kind of person that God favors, but especially when it comes to the kind of king God favors. We see this in some of the Psalms close to this one. In Psalm 15, 2, we see that the one who God allows into his presence is the one who speaks truth in his heart. In Psalm 24, verse 4, we see similarly that he must have a pure heart. So if God is going to give the king what his heart desires, the king must have desires that come from a heart that is devoted to God. Only then will he receive salvation that grants desires. Well, then in the first part of verse 5, the singers pray for salvation to celebrate. Look at verse 5. May we shout for joy over your salvation, and then in the name of our God, set up our banners. So the people, as they sing the song, are looking forward to the victory celebration that they want to participate in. They're praying that the ultimate outcome of this battle would be them shouting for joy because God saved his king from his enemies. They want to wave their banners of celebration and victory to praise the name of their God. There's that word name again. They want to see the day when they can say, God has put his name on us. His reputation was at stake, and he did exactly what he said he would do. He saved his king. He saved his people from their enemies. They want salvation to celebrate. If that doesn't emphasize the point, I don't know what will. As much as I would love to preach this way. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well. That, now you're paying attention. <laughs> Finally, in the second part of verse 5, they pray once again for salvation that answers prayer. Salvation that answers prayer. Salvation that answers... Just kidding. <laughs> Look at the second part of verse 5. 
May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Well, so this last prayer repeats and summarizes the heart of all of these prayers. The king is asking God for salvation, and the people are praying that God would give the king the salvation that he is asking for. The people pray for salvation that answers prayers. And in all of this, in all seven of these prayers for salvation, they are praying for the salvation of the king. The salvation of the king. Well, the people of God in David's day certainly prayed for the salvation of David, their king, as they would physically go out into battle. But as David wrote this song, gave it to the people of God, gave it to generations of the people of God all the way down to us, David also intended, though, to point us, to point forward from his own day to a greater king and a greater salvation. And to see that this was David's intention, we don't have to look far. Just consider Psalm 21 that Dalen preached for us last week. Psalm 21 is very closely related to Psalm 20. Psalm 20 is a prayer asking God for salvation that was needed. Psalm 21 is a prayer of thanksgiving for salvation that God already has given. And in Psalm 21.4, we get a clear indication that these psalms have in mind a greater king than David. Look at Psalm 21, verse 4. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. So as we've already seen in Psalm 20, the people of God are asking God to answer the prayers of the king, to give him his heart's desire. Well, what was his heart desiring? What was he praying for? Among other things, he asked the life of God. And Psalm 21 celebrates in the past how God has given it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. God answered the king's request. The king requested here, though, eternal life and claims God gave it to him. Well, we have to admit, this is something that was not fully true of David because, spoiler alert, he died. So this must be referring to a future king, the descendant of David. One descendant in particular, a promised descendant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David about a descendant. He promised he would give David an offspring who would take the throne and reign forever. And long after David died, the prophets of Israel continued to repeat this promise. They promised that this descendant of David would bring ultimate salvation to God's people. And years later, that king arrived, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus experienced the ultimate salvation of God. The trouble, the day of trouble he faced, it was not a physical battle. It wasn't even just the risk of death. The trouble that Jesus faced was death itself. Jesus died. But God saved him from death for his namesake, just as Psalm 20 prayed for. God raised Jesus from the dead. God sent salvation from 
his heavenly throne. He heard the prayers of King Jesus, the ultimate king priest. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews in chapter 5. We see in Hebrews 5 how Jesus fulfilled Psalm 20. Look with me at verses 7 to 10 of Hebrews chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. King Jesus offered prayers to God just like we see the king offering prayers to God in Psalm 20, and he was heard, just like Psalm 20 asks for, and Jesus was heard because of his reverence. He was the perfect king priest. He offered his very own life as a sacrifice, an offering, and God received his sacrifice as pleasing to him. Jesus offered prayers to God, and God heard his prayers. His heart was devoted to God. He had the pure heart that spoke truth, and God therefore granted all of King Jesus' desires. Like we saw in Psalm 21, these desires include eternal life. God granted King Jesus' desire for eternal life when he saved Jesus from Death. He raised him from the dead, never to die again. The salvation of the king was salvation from death. And the people of God now can raise their banners of celebration because King Jesus, as Hebrews 5 says, has become the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. The king who was saved from death can now give All who trust in him, salvation from death. And that brings us to the end of Psalm 20, in which we see that the salvation of the king is the salvation we need. The salvation of the king is the salvation we need. In verse 6, the psalm shifts from prayers to a statement of confidence. Look at verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Everything that the singers prayed for in verses 1 through 5, they are confident that the Lord will give to the anointed king. The singers say, I know God will save his anointed. I know he will answer from heaven. I know he'll save him with his strong and mighty right hand. And then, in light of this confidence, in verses 7 and 8, they declare 
where their trust is compared to where their enemy's trust is. Verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. So here, the, the singers are contrasting two different kinds of trust. The enemy nations put their trust in military strength. They trust in their arsenal. They trust in things that they can see. They trust in things that they can control. They trust in what they can do by their own power. But God's people trust in his name. The people of Israel have weapons, but that's not where they're placing their trust. They trust that if God has put his name on them, he will save them for the sake of his reputation. Then the psalm contrasts the different results that come from these two different trusts, trusting in the arsenal versus trusting in the Lord. Those who put their trust in their own power and their own weapons collapse and fall. Trusting in the power of man is self-defeating. But those who trust in the name of God rise and stand upright. This was the victory that David experienced against Goliath. David told Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 45, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Because David trusted not in horses or chariots or a sword or a spear, but in the name of God, Goliath collapsed and fell. But David stood and rose. That is the outcome that the singers of Psalm 20 are confident of because they trust in the name of God. So then finally, in verse 9, the whole psalm ends in one last request that gets at the heart of why the singers of this psalm are praying for their king. Verse 9, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. As we've already seen, their ultimate prayer is, God, save the king. This is what the whole psalm has been about, the salvation of the king. Why do they want to pray for this? Why? What do they want to see happen when God saves the king? Well, they say to God about their king, may he, the king, answer us when we call. The singers want God to answer the king so the king will answer them. They want God to save the king so the king can save them. Their prayer to use the words of Hebrews 5, their prayers for the king to become a source of salvation for them because they know the salvation of the king is the salvation we need. As we've already seen from Hebrews 5, Jesus Christ has become the source of eternal salvation for all who trust in him. He is the source of of the salvation we need. 
He is the ultimate anointed king whom God raised from the dead with his mighty right hand. And in Jesus, we can find the salvation we need. The salvation of the king is the salvation we need. We need to be saved from sin. We've all sinned against God. And for our sin, we deserve the punishment of death. The Bible says on our own, not only do we deserve to be punished, but the Bible says that we're slaves to sin, unable to free ourselves from the grasp that sin has on us. But Romans 6.10 says that the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. And because Jesus died to sin, we can be saved from sin if we trust in him. Because the salvation of the king is the salvation we need. We need to be saved not only from sin, we need to be saved from death. We all deserve to die, and we are all destined to die. But Romans 6, 9 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Because Jesus died and rose again, we can be saved from death if we trust in him. Because the salvation of the king is the salvation that we need. The question is, are you trusting in the king for the salvation that you need? You know, the singers of Psalm 20 were confident that the Lord would save the king. And that led them to a question. Are we going to trust in chariots and horses? Or are we going to trust in the name of the Lord our God? And for them, the answer was obvious. We trust in the name of the God who saves the king. Forget our arsenal. Forget what we can see. Forget what we can control. Forget what we can do in our own power. We are trusting in the king who will answer us when we call. We're trusting in the king who is a source of eternal salvation for all who trust in him. So where is your trust? Where is your trust? What do you look for for spiritual security? As you think about your own death, where do you place your confidence as you think about the day that you stand before God, what are you counting on to be able to make it on that day? I grew up in a Christian home, and uh, I trusted in Jesus at an early age. But as I grew up, I found myself trusting in myself more and more. I thought I was a really good kid. I was a rule follower. I was at church every time the doors were opened. I knew all the answers in Sunday school. And without even realizing it, I got quite confident in just how good I was. But then when I got into my teenage years, I started struggling with sin that I hadn't struggled with as a kid. I started seeing parts of my heart that I didn't even know were there. I struggled with thoughts and feelings in my heart that I was ashamed to tell anyone about. I struggled with sins that good little church boys weren't supposed to struggle with. 
And I became really anxious and distressed. I told myself, well, that, no, that's, that's not really who I am. That, that's not really in there. But it was. And so, despite how much I tried to deny it, I couldn't shake the anxiety and despair that was creeping into my heart over the depths of sin that I was seeing. Well, what I realize now is I was so anxious and distressed because I was not trusting in Jesus. I was trusting in myself and my own performance for my spiritual security. I got my sense of security from how good I was. And that worked okay when I thought I was a good kid. But when the sinful depths of my heart were exposed to me, I became worried. And, and I tried to deny that that sin was there because my hope was that I was a good person, and if I admitted that I was that sinful, then I wouldn't have that hope anymore. But in his kindness, in the midst of my anxiety and despair over the depths of sin in my heart, God led me to 1 John chapter 1. Listen to the message of 1 John 1, 8, and 9. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our hope is not that we can have no sin on our own. Our only hope comes when we confess that we are sinners. Our only hope is in a God who is faithful and just. Our only hope is in a God who forgives sin. If we bring our sins to Jesus, he will forgive us of our sins. If we placed our trust in him for salvation, if we place our trust in the salvation of the king, he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So where is your trust today? Where are you placing your trust? Are you trusting in what you can see? Are you trusting in what you can control? Are you trusting in what you can do in your own power? Or are you trusting in the salvation of the king? If you have never placed your faith in Jesus, I would invite you today. Trust in Jesus for salvation. Confess that you are a sinner and trust him. For forgiveness, trust him to cleanse your heart. Bow to him as your king. Or maybe you're like I was. You trusted in Jesus at one point, but you've been drifting into trusting in yourself and your own performance. Well, let me remind you today that your only hope for salvation is in the king. 
So don't trust in yourself. Trust in the name of Jesus. The salvation of the king is the salvation we need. Let's pray together. Father, we have heard your word. We have seen how your people are dependent on the salvation of the king for their salvation. And Lord, we confess today that on our own, we have no hope for salvation. We have no hope for righteousness. We have no hope for spiritual security. We have no hope for eternal life. Lord, we are on our own, destined for death. But Lord, you saved the king. King Jesus died as a substitute for sinners, and you raised him from the death to provide eternal salvation for all who trust in him. So Lord, I pray that every person in this room would consider the question, where is my trust? What am I looking for, for eternal security? And Lord, I pray that for those who have never trusted in Christ today, they would realize the hopelessness that they're in and that you would, by your grace, move in their hearts to trust in Jesus to save them. And Lord, I pray for those who have trusted in Jesus, who know that the salvation of the king is the salvation they need. But Lord, if they have been drifting into self-trust and self-dependence and self-righteousness, Lord, I pray that you would free them from the bondage of self-righteousness today and that you would, by your grace, move so that they would place their trust in Christ alone for their security. Lord, the salvation of the king is the salvation we need. Lord, would that be true in our hearts? Would we believe that to be true and bank our lives and all of our hopes on King Jesus.